Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1991. Why do you podcast? You mean people? Yes. We just podcast. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with you, but you podcast anyway. The movie, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And welcome to Unspooled. Hey, everybody. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. And this is Unspooled. It's a brand new year, and we are kicking it off with a bang, with a banger film. A movie that was just inducted into the American Film Registry, James Cameron's Terminator 2. And boy, oh boy, we got a big, big episode, Amy. I am excited to break this down with you. Oh, me too. I have been in a headspace of researching Terminator 2 for several days, and it has been nothing but pleasure. And now I feel like I have to do like 900 push-ups and get like some triceps in my life. I have none. Get those Linda Hamilton arms. And we'll talk about that. Was Linda Hamilton's performance just brought down to her physique? I mean, what she was doing on screen is absolutely amazing. The fact that she was not nominated for something in the Academy Awards, I guess either best actress or best supporting actress is confounding to me. Absolutely confounding. And I wonder too, could this be Arnold Schwarzenegger's best performance? Can he get his best performance playing a man made of metal? I think it's a very strong contender. I will say I'm very happy though. We didn't fall victim to Arnold Schwarzenegger as a uh, producer because some of his ideas for the sequel to Terminator were not good. And if he had his way, we would have missed out on this amazing mix of like the birth of CGI and and still this embracing of practical effects that created this landmark film. I think that people don't realize how few effects are in this movie. I mean, this movie only has 42 CGI effects. That's 42. That's mind-blowing to me. And what blows my mind is that this film not only had, I think, top five most iconic cop villain ever made, it also has connections to the Rodney King beating, which happened while this movie was being filmed. Well, Amy, come with me if you want to podcast 
It's now time to unspool it. The year is 1991, and you won't believe this, but everyone is saying that James Cameron's new movie is going to be an expensive disaster that might ruin his career forever. At $94 million, Terminator 2 is the most expensive movie ever made. It's a wild figure. When you remember that the first Terminator, a story about a waitress named Sarah Connor who was chased by a robotic death machine from the future that wants to prevent her from giving birth to the savior of humanity, cost just $6.4 million when it was made in 1984. We last caught up with Cameron for the movie he made after that, Aliens. But his movie after that, The Abyss, barely made its money back. And it did have this kind of cool liquid computer graphic monster effect, though. And that has been on Cameron's mind. Meanwhile, a Terminator sequel has been very much on Arnold Schwarzenegger's mind. He persuades Carolco Pictures to buy the rights to the first Terminator from two groups. The first production company, Hemdale, which is starting to flounder, and from James Cameron's Very, very, very recent ex-wife, the producer Gail Ann Hurd, who he had just divorced the year before to marry the filmmaker Catherine Bigelow. Arnie gets them to get the rights, and they give him a salary that includes a private plane. And James Cameron is given the freedom to go wild as long as he hits a summer release date that has already been planned out before he and his writing partner, William Wisher, have even written a word of the script. Now... They had a bunch of ideas that we're going to talk about. But for now, let's just run with the one that they picked. Terminator 2 is set in the near future of 1995. John Connor, Sarah Connor's son, has been born and he's a 10-year-old foster kid causing mild amounts of mayhem in Los Angeles. Now, he's played by Edward Furlong. In his acting debut, John Connor's mom, still played by Linda Hamilton, has spent the last decade bulking up and going insane due to her visions of a nuclear apocalypse. She's in a mental hospital when two more Terminators come back from the future to try to kill her son again. But this time, Arnold Schwarzenegger's machine-built T-800 is good, And Robert Patrick's more advanced liquid metal Terminator, the T-1000, is very, very bad. Terminator 2 opened on July 3rd, 1991, and it was a massive, massive, massive hit. This is a moment of peak cocky Arnold Schwarzenegger enjoying his success, as you can hear is when he takes his victory lap of Terminator 2 over to the Arsenio Hall show. (laughs) No, I read something in the L.A. Times that I find... Very interesting. Um, Not only is it killing the other movies, but one of the writers wrote that people sometimes won't go to to other affairs like concerts. They mentioned like David Lee Roth. People go to the Terminator and it's it's messing with box office for for uh, concerts and other and plays and stuff. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) There be a Terminator three. Terminator three. Well, we have thought about it. You know, and uh, maybe, who knows? If you do one, uh, I think uh, I can see already the title. The Sperminator. I come again. How about that? (laughs) It was the highest grossing film of the year. And at the time, it was the third highest grossing film ever made. Needless to say, James Cameron continued to have a career. And now he's got a template in his head of what success looks like a major gamble, and a major, major payout. So, what was in the zeitgeist that July 3rd of 1991? A song that, in its own roundabout way, 
presages a touch of doom for Arnold and James Cameron because of who its music video stars. The video is a knockoff of Rebel Without a Cause, where the actor playing young James Dean will go on to have a much, much, much bigger present-day action career than Arnold himself. He will actually become the next generation's model of an action star, a real-life version of the slimmer, faster, less muscle-bound T-1000. And that action career starts because of a film that's going to be released just one week after Terminator 2 by James Cameron's wife, Catherine Bigelow, who two months later will file for divorce. And in 19 years, she will beat Cameron out of Best Picture and Best Director at the Oscars. I am speaking, of course, of Point Break in the arrival of action star Keanu Reeves. Here, right now in this one little weak sliver of a moment, not an action star yet, just a guy romancing Paula Abdul in the music video for Rush Rush. Now, Amy, great song, and Keanu, fantastic in it, but does he have more sex appeal than MC Scat Cat? I I think (laughs) not. And the fact that we never got to see an MC Scat Cat full feature film, I mean, MC Scat Cat and uh, Patrick Swayze in Point Break, I would have loved that. I mean, I will say when MC Scat Cat appreciated a woman, he really let you know. I don't know if his eyes did the full, like, auga, but I could really picture them. He knew how to flirt. Those boy band stars, those pop stars, those rap stars of, like, the early 90s, they knew how to woo, man. They're like, I got rose petals for you. For people who are absolutely and utterly confused about what we're talking about, <laughs> Paul Abdul did a video with a animated cat, very much like Roger Rabbit, uh, who had the hots for her, and she had the hots for him. And you know what? It was the 80s, and we were cool with it. Or maybe it was the 90s. Someone will correct me. Um, Amy, this movie is truly a classic. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And in my research about it, I was surprised about how it really came to be. Because the interesting thing about Terminator was, for a long time, no one knew who had the rights for it. It wasn't a movie that they could make a sequel to because no one knew who owned it. Yeah, part of this was because... This was James Cameron's first real proper film, if you're not counting Prana 2 when he was like working back in the Corman factory. And so to get it made, to get the $6 million to get this movie made, he had to, you know, not own his own rights. He had to sell off a lot of stuff. He had to basically like gamble his future on just getting the the finances to start his future. And by the way, just so you know, and just to put it in perspective, that opening sequence of the destruction of Los Angeles that we see in the film, which is amazing. That sequence cost more than the original Terminator. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, they were already in the hole, I think something like $30 million before they even had started making the film between like Arnold Schwarzenegger's salary and buying back the rights from everybody who didn't want to give them back. Who was like, that's my ex-husband. No way. I want to say a couple quick things right up at the top about this, like, apocalypse. A, hilarious thing to do. Go find footage online of the B-roll of them shooting the apocalypse with the kids and having the kids act like they're getting blown up. It's very funny. Perfect. And then you fall. Oh, it's burning. Oh, man, action. He jumps off and covers up. Oh, stop. <laughs> What'd you do? What, see Commando ten times? <laughs> 
And also, I want to say just this about the apocalypse date, August 29th, 1997. I was like, what happened August 29th, 1997? Did anything happen that seems apocalyptic? I was thinking, didn't Princess Diana die around then? She did, but it was like a couple days off. But get this. If you want to think about what would be an apocalypse to James Cameron, the king of the blockbuster, the king of the theater, the king of like, we got to do things big, proper, big budget, spectacle, majorness, protect the theatrical experience. Guess what actually did happen on August 29th, 1997? Amy, tell me. Netflix was founded by Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings. Wow. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh Uh-huh. Isn't that wild? Also, by the way, I want to pick up on something that I feel like has never quite sunken into me about this movie, which is that it is set in 1995, like that it is four years in the future. And I was like, are there any tells in here that make this feel like it is actually wrong about like what 1995 is? And the only one I could think of is that this movie, you know, when they were trying to figure out like what's going to be like our big music video tie in, Arnold Schwarzenegger was like, It has to be the biggest band in the world. I don't care who they are. Just what is the biggest band in the world? And they opened up Billboard magazine. They saw Guns N' Roses and they were like, this movie has roses and guns. It's perfect. So they reached out to Guns N' Roses, showed them a cut of this movie. They did. They gave them the song You Could Be Mine, which I love. Owned the single. Did the whole music video about it. I love how it becomes like such a touchstone for like cool old Eddie Furlong, despite his public enemy shirt that like you can track where he, he and his buddy are in the movie just by like the telltale sound of Guns N' Roses because they're just driving around playing it on repeat. But what this movie doesn't quite realize is that in two months after it's released, Nirvana is going to release Nevermind and people will not be listening to Guns N' Roses in 1995. The band will be in a very shaky state. Grunge will take over and they got that wrong. You just can't predict the future, man. All right, well, I'll say one other thing where truly they got it wrong. Two words, Afterburner. Afterburner was already on the decline by 91. It was not going to be coming back. Eddie Furlong, John Connor is playing Afterburner in that arcade. And I looked it up and that came out in 1987. It would no way be as popular. As a matter of fact, you know, he probably should be playing something like uh, Tekken or perhaps Time Crisis. That would be a more, you know, uh, John Connor kind of game. I also want to talk about Schwarzenegger in this moment. Schwarzenegger's in this weird spot because he's also gone from being a bad guy to being this family-friendly guy at this point, right? He's just made uh, Twins in 88. He's made Kindergarten Cop in 1990. And he's kind of shedding this this energy, like this bad guy energy. Yes, he was in Total Recall, but I would also say that Total Recall, he's a good guy, and it's not as violent as we were used to seeing Schwarzenegger. So he's in an interesting moment in his career. Well, yeah, he's kind of straddling both worlds in a way that I find really interesting. Like when you go back and watch the trailer for Kindergarten Cop, what is so funny about it is it starts like it's going to be like a dramatic, scary Terminator movie. You know, they're playing so much with his image. Like, He's not doing a gentle transition. He's doing like a hard about face transition. You can hear that here. He's a cop in a class by himself. He is fearless, unstoppable, unbeatable. No fear. No fear. What the morning and out the food? 
kindergarten cop. But yet, even at that same time, even as he's becoming like a kinder, gentler statesman of America, even as he's like literally representing the government in the presidential fitness exams and like kids be healthy, he cannot even do these promos for like the presidential fitness council without referencing how scary he can be. As a parent, I appreciate the importance of education, but I also appreciate the value of teaching our children good fitness habits. With all that proven benefit of regular exercise, you can see why physical education is so important to their future. Our children need healthy hearts to grow into healthy adults. So let's be sure that they grow up smart and fit. And if you're still not convinced, I'll be back. He knows what he's up to, but he's like, where is my future? What's happening? Which is why when James Cameron comes to him and he's like, hey, what if in this new Terminator movie that we're making happen, you don't kill anybody? And he's like, what well, is that? I mean, it even goes one step further. He reads the script on a plane to go announce the film because, again, this movie is being made at lightning speed, which is kind of insane for a movie yeah. this giant. James Cameron is basically like, I finished the script when I was supposed to be on a plane going to Cannes. I like finished it, ran to the airport, held everybody up and gave him the, the script on the plane so that we could get there and announce that we're making this movie. And Schwarzenegger's like, wait, I'm good in this movie? No, no, I don't want to be good. Schwarzenegger wanted to be bad. I mean, Schwarzenegger had a lot of bad ideas. Like he's like, I want to be bad. I want to be both Terminators. He didn't get it. And... The one thing you can say about Cameron is that he understands story. When he was going to make a sequel, I think he's made great sequels. Um, I haven't seen the new Avatar, so maybe I'll oh, I take have. that. Okay. So, but he had made great sequels. He understood like it wasn't just about doing a redo, like a greatest hits of the first one. He needed to figure out a way to change it up, to make it a little bit more interesting. And this idea of having Schwarzenegger be good is really fascinating because it plays on the fears that Linda Hamilton's character has. They even went so far to say that Michael Bean would actually play the other Terminator, but then they figured... The oh, original wait, that's... Kyle Reese. The original yes. Kyle Reese coming back just to mentally screw with Linda Hamilton even more and be like, yes, I fathered your son, but now I'm going to kill him. So there are a lot of these ideas that are at play. I think that they make the best idea, which is just this idea that Schwarzenegger is the old model and there's a new, more advanced model that's sent back in time. And Kyle Reese sends back this T-800. It's a very simple idea. And I think that in playing with it, it it gives Schwarzenegger a chance to really act. Because when you watch that first movie, the first Terminator, there's always been this joke about Schwarzenegger. Like, would there ever be a Schwarzenegger now? I don't think so. Like, like there's nobody as wooden as he was. Like, he was imposing physically, but he wasn't like a great actor. But in this movie, even playing a robot, he's able to do more than... I think that we've seen him do before in an action role. Cause I think that, yes, he shed that a little bit and they're playing into it in movies like twins and even kindergarten cop. I think that twins is a better movie, but um, like he's starting to come into his own in, in many respects. I think this is the best Schwarzenegger has ever looked like his body looks great. He's like, in full control of himself as an actor. He knows what he's doing on screen. Like he knows, yes. he knows the effect of it. He knows the set. He knows this character. He knows what the impact of this role will be. You know, he's able to see it, I think from the outside too, in a way that's like very clarifying. 
I mean, because he has lived with this character so long. He knows how people feel about this character. I mean, the last time we talked about early Arnie was when we did a Conan the Barbarian episode, which is much earlier than this. That's before Terminator even for him. He's like figuring out what his screen presence is going to be. By now, he knows it. Like he knows what he's good at and he knows what he's bad at. He knows what he can do. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because (laughs) the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello. Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, one of the things that I'm bummed about is, and this is just the way that movies work, is that they couldn't have kept the secret a little bit longer. Like when you went to go see Terminator 2, you knew that Schwarzenegger was the good Terminator. You did. I actually went back to try to remember how that worked. Like, because rewatching it this time, I was thinking like, was there a moment in the theater where everybody was like shocked, where you would have been like, oh my God, I thought Arnie was coming to kill Edward Furlong, but no, he's shooting the other Terminator. And I was wondering, I couldn't remember if like people had felt that suspense, that like switcheroo at the time. So I like went back and even watched you know, the old trailer to be like, does the trailer let you know that he's not going to be completely evil? Once he was programmed to destroy the future. I don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission. Get down. Is to protect it. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time he's back. For good. Trust me. I mean... That is an amazing tagline. Back for good. Back for good. I love it. Oh, it's so smooth. But like Cameron was talking about in in interviews, what it was like to try to accustom people to the idea that this was going to be a not evil Terminator. You know, he was like, if I just dumped it on people that Arnold was the good guy in the movie, I don't think people would have bought it. So he did this in stages. He really kind of calibrated it. He was like, first we announced that there's going to be a Terminator 2. Then we announced that Arnold's going to be the character from the same model line. Then we announced that he's been reprogrammed to be a hero. Then we say there's a second Terminator. He almost kind of adjusted us to the idea. Right. He like he slow played the idea because I think that we wanted to see Schwarzenegger as a killing machine. And by the way, the way that he's dressed in this movie, you know, the leather jacket, the tight pants, the motorcycle, the shotgun, the whole look of him is incredibly badass. And he gets to be this badass hero who also acts like a villain. Yes, he doesn't kill anyone. He shoots a ton of people in the knees. Yeah, a bunch of people are never playing tag football on Thanksgiving ever again. (laughs) I mean, so he does kick ass in this movie a lot. I mean, there's one scene in this movie in particular that I had a hard time with rewatching it. There's a moment where the Terminator and John Connor are together. You know, John Connor starts saying like, help, help me, help me. And these two... Like, they look like rough dudes. Like, 
going, oh my gosh, we need to help this child. Like this child is being beaten up by this, this hulking man. And immediately as they come over, the kid's like, fuck you, you're a douchebag. <laughs> like Schwarzenegger like beats the shit out of him and almost like blows one of the guy's heads off. And this is the moment where it's like revealed like, no, no, you can't kill him. I order you not to kill. Like that's the moment where we realize like, like Schwarzenegger can't kill anyone in this movie. But I feel so bad for those two dudes who are just going over to help a 10-year-old boy from not being attacked. They go over there, they get their asses kicked, and they get kind of like balled out by this dicky 10-year-old. I was like, why ever help anyone? You okay, kid? Take a hike, Bozo. So let's get out of here. What? Fuck you, you little dipshit. Dipshit? Put your leg down. Did you call moi a dipshit? Just trying to help this punk. Grab this guy. I can't believe he called me. Ah! Yes, that jumped out at me too. And then I was thinking, you know, one of the lessons of Terminator 2 is these Terminators come down to Earth. They meet a bunch of humans who I think are mostly helpful. Mostly helpful. You know, there's a huge car crash like on the freeway. They get out. They're like, hey, can we help? Hello? Damn, you are right, oh. You know what they get? Fucking killed. Fucking killed. This movie is like turning humans into being mean because it's saying, do not try to help anybody. They will absolutely kill you. But also then if you like resist this guy who comes up and says he wants your clothes, you're also going to get completely destroyed. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> You forgot to say, please. I mean, humans kind of can't win in here. We're like, we're kind of nice, but we're sort of jerks. It was funny. I was thinking about this movie in terms of like the last, like big, big movie we covered on here last month, Edward Scissorhands. You know, they're both about like, I am a metal machine designed to hurt people coming around and humans are kind of dicks in, in Edward Scissorhands. And here they're like, humans are kind of nice, but they're, we're still going to die. It's this, this collision between like metal and humanity. I don't feel like humanity ever wins. No, I mean, obviously he's talking about how technology takes down society, but also technology saves society. It's a it's a it's an interesting line there, right? Because yes, they have to destroy the T eight hundred at the end of the movie, but at the same time, without the T eight hundred, humanity would be over. Like you know, like it, like I guess maybe what it's coming to is. Technology is a necessary evil? Oh, man. Or, yeah, I mean, there's empathy in here for the people who make technology. It's funny because now, in a world where everything is technology, much more than when I was a very young child who watched this movie incessantly on VHS, now I'm very prone to pay attention, very sharp attention to, like, subplots about tech whizzes who seem like they're going to destroy the Earth. Because now I'm like, the world is just full of tech people who are about to destroy the Earth. I didn't think of it in the same way here. I guess if you're like alive in the 90s, honestly, and you survived like the Cold War, you, you're just thinking of Oppenheimer. And so you are thinking still of like tech whizzes who can just, who can like destroy the year. I mean, that. so now I take that all back. You know, we've just passed 2023, the year where like we we're all reminded of what it is like to just be a tech genius who destroys everything. And that it's just an, an eternal, it's an eternal struggle. Well, but thank God for Joe Morton, who plays Miles Dyson in this movie, who is a tech genius, who when he finds out that he is responsible for the destruction of the world, 
immediately wants to vomit. Like he, there's a version of this movie where that character would be a supreme dick and be an obstacle. And he is actually a wonderfully smart, technologically minded person who had no idea that he was working towards that. That's true. It's like he learns he's horrified. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like he's horrified, but nevertheless, Sarah Connor still gets to yell at him and say, you are Oppenheimer. You're judging me on things I haven't even done yet. Right. How are you supposed to know? Fucking men like you built the hydrogen bomb. Men like you thought it up. I think you're so creative. You don't know what it's like to really create something, to create a life. Feel it growing inside you. All you know how to create is death and destruction. Mom! We need to be a little more constructive here, okay? We still have to stop this from happening, don't we? I mean, what a double feature would this make with Oppenheimer? I was thinking about that because I also learned that like when uh, James Cameron was even trying to come up with the plot, part of what turned him into understanding the character of John Connor, how he was going to do John Connor, was that he was listening to a song from Sting that also name checks Oppenheimer. And I want to play a little bit of this song. It's called Russians because, you know, Thanks to our Emperor's New Groove, where we learned that Sting did not get to like shape and create a musical. At least he had a hand in this one. Well, let me just also put one caveat on this. Yes, this song inspired him, but it also was a song that he was listening to when he was high on ecstasy, which he also has <laughs> talked about openly. So now put that together and listen. How can I say? On ecstasy, do you think that's how he comes up with all of his stuff for Avatar still? Or do you think he's like moved on to, to, to a different drug? Do you think he knows drugs that we don't even know exist? I mean, he's on that drug of like a lack of oxygen getting beneath the surface. Like that guy's that guy's gone and done everything. I feel like, he, yeah, he must be getting high, maybe on like, like Navi berries. I have no proof for this, but I'm just going to say he's probably done peyote. I have no proof for this. Oh, He's almost course. certainly done ayahuasca. Oh, I mean, Amy, that like that, you're you're saying like, oh, he most certainly has had a diet coke. Like, of course, <laughs> like that's the easy stuff. I will say this: what's really interesting about that song, you know, there's a line in there. I hope the Russians love their children too, and that was what really got Cameron thinking. Like he he thought about yes, these movies they're going to be these giant action sequences, but the heart of the movie is the relationship, and he started thinking about this movie in regards to The Wizard of Oz. He's like, this is a movie where the Tin Man gets his heart. It leads to these moments that are really interesting. Like, we start to learn that the Terminator, the T-800, can learn and mimic. It's taking in information. We saw that in the first film a little bit. But here, Edward Furlong is T-800. 
teaching him things. And it leads to that moment, I guess it culminates in that moment, where the T-800 gives the thumbs up as he's being dropped into molten lava, a moment that everyone hated on set. They're like, no, what are you doing? What? No, 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 that's lame. You can't do that. It's It's a great moment. And I think that this is why I sometimes have issues with Cameron, which is he goes there in the sense that he is not afraid to be, and we talked about this in the Titanic episode, all heart. And yes, that is a cheesy moment, but the movie is so cool that you forgive it. Wait, now I'm picturing Leonardo DiCaprio sinking into the ocean, but giving a thumbs up as he goes under. <laughs> <laughs> if Kate Winslet taught him that, he would have done it. But I, you know, I think that there are these things that are incongruous to James Cameron because he does make these big movies. Like I think that there's a thought of James Cameron being Michael Bay. And I think the big difference between the two of them is heart. I love a Michael Bay movie. I'm not here to talk negatively about Michael Bay. But there's a reason why we've done several Camerons and no Michael Bays yet. Yes. And I think that part of that is him playing into these old tropes. And whether you like them or not, they are effective. And you can get away with a lot more stuff because of that. And this movie is cool as hell. Things, like I said, don't always make sense. I know someone like on Reddit at one point got mad at me because I critiqued the amount of eggs that the mama alien and aliens laid. And look, I was just saying that obviously like that's a lot of eggs for these aliens that can't really fly a ship and get off the planet and they've killed everybody on the planet. Uh, but why? Because it's cool. It looks good and it's exciting and it's fucking terrifying. I think that these movies aren't about drilling in on everything. Like, well, why can the T-1000 uh, just appear? Doesn't he have to have like a flesh sack on? That was part of the rules that we understand in the, you know, in the first movie. It's like, well, we can get caught up in all the minutia, but the truth is we don't need it. And the best character to deliver exposition in this movie is a fucking robot, which is Schwarzenegger. Edward Furlong asks him what happened and he like spits it out like he's reading, uh, you know, from the Internet. And it's great. It's like, OK, that's all we need. We get it. We This movie is, in many respects, such a simple, clean premise that you can actually enjoy the heart and the action. And, and I and I think this is the first time watching this movie that I was like, I get Cameron. I get Cameron more than I've ever gotten Cameron. It's like. Keep it simple, stupid. And you can do everything else if you're not worried about answering all these other questions. But I think what he does, too, he keeps his heart in check, right? Because right. there's heart running all the way through this movie, but it's never in the places that you expect it's going to be. Because this movie is about, on paper, a 10-year-old boy is, you know, trying not to be murdered, right? Right. And, like, the bad version of this movie just casts a really cute 10-year-old boy and it's like, protect him. Don't you want to protect this tiny little 10-year-old boy? Isn't he a sweetie? And we don't get that boy. We don't get, like, the helpless little sweet innocent boy. We get the boy who, like, understands how to, like, change out machine gun fire. We get the boy who's been, like, trained to be a survivalist. We get a boy who's kind of a dick and will get people hurt because he thinks it's sort of funny. You know, we get a version of this kid who, like, they're telling him, like, hey, drive this car for a little bit. And he's 10 years old. And... Yeah, he's totally got this. He can absolutely drive a car. Like, nothing in this kid is weak. And that's what I think makes it a Cameron movie. You're protecting a child, but you're not protecting the sweetest little, most, like, helpless child on the planet. Let me ask you a question, Amy. What? You think Edward Furlong's good in this movie? I do think Edward Furlong is good in this movie. 
Why? There are moments. Why? You don't think he's good in this movie? Look, it's a tricky movie, right? He's a 10-year-old kid. He's never acted before. The entire film is dubbed. You know yeah. that, right? Like, So they had to go back in because his voice was changing so much. You can notice it in the film because he changes throughout the entire film. There is something really perfectly annoying about him. I think you are right. If the character was slightly different, it would be a bad performance. But because he's kind of this other thing... And he's got his wits about him. And I was looking at my nine-year-old. And I was going like, yeah, that would be kind of the way my nine-year-old would act. I think it is a real performance. I don't know if it's a great performance, if that makes sense. right? There's two different lines there, right? I think that they capture something good. But he's also in between these two powerhouses. I would even say three with Robert Patrick. But I mean, between Linda Hamilton and Schwarzenegger... Because they're so stoic, his over-emotion, it's almost like uh, sound dampeners for his performance. Like, I feel like if left alone, it would reverberate too much and be like, ooh, this kid. But because of the two of them, it's kind of a lighter energy. So, yeah, I'm a little bit mixed. I was, like, thinking about it last night. I was like, is he good? Is he bad? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know. I remember when I saw it, I thought he was cool. Like, I love that jacket. I love that public enemy shirt. Like, I loved his hair. I'm mixed on whether or not he's a great actor, but I think he's well cast. I mean, he's wonderfully cast. Like, he'd never acted before. He wasn't a kid who was auditioning or anything like that. I mean, basically, basically, the story that I heard is that, like, James Cameron needed this role to be filled, brought in a bunch of young actors, thought they all sucked because they were giving that kind of performance we're talking about. You know, the like, hey, buy this cereal from me. Ain't I a stinker little kid? Mm -hmm. You know? It didn't want that. So, like, he sent his casting agent around to just find kids who could do this. And she found him, like, on the steps of a boys and girls club in Pasadena. And, like, his story at the time was that he was in kind of, like, a crazy place that wasn't, it wasn't, like, hey, you're being raised to, like, be the savior of the future. But it was, like, hey, your mom is not equipped to take care of you. You're having to live with your aunt and uncle. That was what was happening in his life at that time. He didn't know his dad ever. Also, what's happening in this film is also happening in his life. And then people zoom in and they're like, come with me if you want to live. And in a way, that's kind of James Cameron being like, hey, kid, you're not in a great place right now. Come with me. I will give you a life. I will turn you into something. And I think he puts all of this kind of like suspicion of adults. I've had to do a lot of stuff on my own. I don't quite know who to trust. I got this. I'm cool. I'm tough. I'm mature. I'm older than my years into this movie. And I think it actually does really work. Like, I I buy him very much as this character. And then I also be, believe, like, man, we should have protected Edward Furlong better. Yeah. Like, I went down a dark rabbit hole researching yeah. this. He's making this movie. His biological mom, his aunt and uncle, and a lawyer are fighting over the rights of, like, hey, suddenly this kid that we weren't really paying that much attention to was, like, a bazillion-dollar cash cow in the biggest movie of all time. How are we going to get a piece of this? And... Um, they cast this, like, woman to be his stand-in. She's 26. She also becomes, like, his tutor. And then she becomes his, like, manager. And then she becomes, I will use the word that people used at the time, his girlfriend, which is just, like, makes wow. your brain explode. So when he's 15 and everybody's, like, fighting over his rights for this kid, he starts the paperwork to, like, emancipate himself and he moves in with her. At that time in California... We did not have it on the books that, like, it was statutory rape if an older woman was with a younger man. That didn't even become illegal until, like, a couple of years after this. So people are just like, oh, that's weird. 
and journalists are like kind of writing about it. And he's sort of in the tabloids with his girlfriend when, you know, he's like 16 and she's 30. But man, people did not keep this kid safe. He went down a very dark wormhole. I also say, too, as much as I'm saying in this film, I don't think he's doing a great job as an actor. I, I think he's turned in some fantastic performances. I mean, American History X, I think he's great in. And, you know, you could talk about uh, Pet Cemetery as well. Like, like I think he actually learned from this movie how to be a little bit of a better actor. And I think then he sadly gets caught up in this Hollywood lifestyle and he has no one to protect him and everyone to take advantage of him. And, you know, it's it's lucky that he is still alive in many respects. I, I thought about that last night. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't I was looking at where he's been and what he went through. I'm like, it's amazing that he he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, it was brutal. I think he had like one director from a movie he made right after this try to kind of stand up from a guy named Tony Bill who directed him in a movie called A Home of Our Own. Like he tried to fire this lady from being his tutor, but the guardians kept her on. He tried to like alert his agent. And he had this line. He was like, Edward Furlong didn't choose the movies. The movies chose him. And it has taken a heavy toll. But I think he really, I think he holds the screen really great. Honestly, when you have a movie where like the three major adult figures are all varying shades of robotic, you know, and you could argue that like Linda Hamilton is more of a Terminator in this movie than like Arnold Schwarzenegger gets to be. She's actually like prepared to kill people at all times. And he's been only shooting people in the knees and ruining their like touch football career. Like I like him in this movie. I think he brings kind of a fun energy. And in the scenes that I would think would be kind of annoying, he makes them seem less annoying because I genuinely believe this kid is just like, we're hanging out. You gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative or some shit like that. You say, no problemo. And if someone comes off to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. But also in that scene right there, I was like, oh, James Cameron wrote John Connor to be Bart Simpson. That's just what I think was on the back of his mind. Ah. He's like, who is this kid? He's Bart Simpson. I've never thought about that, and I've quickly adopted it and agree with you. Yes, he is Bart Simpson. Put him writing something on that chalkboard at the beginning of Terminator 2. <laughs> I also just want to talk about the patience of this movie, because it's a movie where we live with Edward Furlong for a long time. You understand where Sarah Connor is. You just don't get like a brush stroke of it. Like every character is really wonderfully set up. So when you start to barrel towards this end, you can just get into full action because we've allowed ourselves to embrace our characters, know what the rules are, and then we're just off to the races. But I love how patient it all is. And even in that reveal of who is the good and bad Terminator, because the movie isn't made to reveal that to an audience who saw a preview, right? The movie is made in a way where I think if you're watching it, you're going, okay, Schwarzenegger is back to be the bad guy. And this nice, good-looking Man, Robert Patrick, the police officer, is the protector, right? Because the way that he talks to uh, Edward Furlong's parents, you're like, oh my gosh, I this is the guy, this is the nice guy, and and then I we love first... that. I love that. I pulled that scene because you just hear like this idea of like I have adopted this uniform, and these people will go along with anything I say because I'm smiling. Are you the legal guardian of John Connor? That's right, officer. What's he done now? Could I speak with him, please? Could if you were here. Took off on his bike this morning so he could be anywhere. Do you have a photograph of John? Yeah, sure. Hold on. You gonna tell me what this is about? 
just need to ask him a few questions. He's a good-looking boy. Do you mind if I keep this picture? No, go on. There was a guy here this morning looking for him, too. Yeah, a big guy on a bike. Has that got something to do with this? No. I wouldn't worry about him. Thanks for your cooperation. I mean, how terrifying is it that the scariest machine in here, the scariest death machine, is the one who's the best able to mimic human emotions? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, the other idea that you can't trust a cop. I mean, this is an interesting film for a lot of different reasons. But one of the most interesting coincidences is what happened culturally in this moment too. the biker bar where they shot Terminator 2, where Schwarzenegger first shows up, which has now since become a library, was maybe a half a block away from where the Rodney King beating happened. And it happened just a couple days before the actual filming of that scene, so much so that the person who got the videotaped footage of the beating had footage of Terminator 2 on the same tape on the camera that he was using. Like, he was like, oh, I'm taping Terminator 2. Oh, my God, I just saw this. Let me pull up my camera. Like, the news, when they got that footage, like, there was footage of Terminator 2 on there because this guy had this amazing vantage point. It's so wild. I mean, like, James Cameron was even giving interviews about that. He said... That is the most amazing irony, considering that the LAPD are strongly represented in Terminator 2 as a dehumanizing force, which is true in how he uses them. You know, they show up at the Dyson chemicals or the Dyson plant and they just start mowing down everybody they see, except they go a little bit nice on Arnold Schwarzenegger and don't shoot the gigantic, you know, white muscle bound Austrian guy like holding a gun. But they do just straight up kill Dyson, you know, the only black character in this film. Part of what saves John Connor's life is he has an instinctive dislike of cops, right? Like, that's yeah. kind of what keeps him and his buddy safe. Like, he's got that red-haired buddy who, I love this red-haired buddy's face. Danny because, Cooksey. Like, that, Danny Cooksey. When I was a child, Danny Cooksey was always the cool friend, I felt like, in everything. Like, if there was a cool friend, it was usually this red-haired oh, kid. Oh, yeah, on on uh, different strokes. He yeah. was the cool kid. He was the cool kid. I, I even grew up to like date a guy who kind of looked like Danny Cooksey. I was just like, yeah, that's that, that's that guy. But like, you know, Robert Patrick is walking around the mall and he's like, instantly, I got to keep my buddy away from this. Oh, no. Girls, do you know John Connor? No. no. Oh. Hey, do you know this guy? No, I don't know him. John, not now, not now. Hey, man, there's this cop scoping for you. Check it out. And then, you know, our last shot of him is basically like Danny Cooksey getting pushed around, but still in his last moments trying to fuck with the cop. Ah! Hey, man, I think I saw that kid you To which I gotta say, may we all have friends like Danny Cooksey. Good for you, sir. I like Danny Cooksey. He helped out Arnold Jackson when they were stranded at Universal Studios, a great episode of Different Strokes, and also helped out John Connor from getting busted by a T-1000. I mean, what better friend is there? There's none. You know, now for some reason in my head, I have it maybe because we just passed the holiday season, that I would watch a version of It's a Wonderful Life, but like Clarence, the angry drunken angel, is actually just Danny Cooksey helping you out in life. I would trust him. (laughs) If Danny Cooksey... Shows up in my life. I'm just warning you, Danny, wherever you are. I know you're out there somewhere. If you showed up in your, in my life and you said, I've got a piece of advice for you or let me help you out with something, I would just let you do it. I'd be like, absolutely. I trust you. Absolutely. 
start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, I do want to talk about the cop because we, we've talked around him a little bit, but Robert Patrick in this movie is unbelievable. Like, he really is doing some amazing acting. He's inhabiting liquid metal. I, you know, he is a robot in a way that is so impressive that you don't even realize it until you read a lot of how he prepped for the role. Like... He only breathed through his nose. So he looked like a cyborg. So he could run at high speeds without showing fatigue. You know, he actually trained so hard. He was able to catch Edward Furlong on his bike with ease. He innately does the Tom Cruise run. His hands are kind of out. But he was like, I was holding them out so that they could become blades at any point. Actually, now I want to like map his run over Edward Scissorhands' run and do like, do they hold their hands the exact same way? (laughs) You know, I also think what's really interesting about him is that he worked with every actor that the T-1000 embodied. So everyone that the T-1000 became, he would share a similarity with. And you can actually tell that in the film. Like, he worked with everyone. And, you know, we have to call out somebody that we talked about so much in the Aliens episode. But, I mean, Jeanette Goldstein, Vasquez in Aliens. One of is, my favorite characters of all time. I love those guys. So wildly different, right? Like, I mean, when you think like, oh, the mom from Terminator and Vasquez, like, like I know it's acting. Yes, 100%. But like, wow. I mean, she seems probably more like the mom in Terminator than she does Vasquez. Uh, and I and I just love that she brought it on that level for aliens. Like, it, it actually probably, I wonder if it hurt her career in a way that people didn't see her as someone who could do more things than she did. I wonder because, you know, she only gets like three scenes in this movie, but they all really pop. I mean, especially that last one where she's pretending to have, uh, you know, the robot inside of her, where she's pretending to like be embodying him. And she's got the layers of like acting like she is inside a T-1000, but also acting like a T-1000 who's trying to act like charming and really nice. That scene just like imprinted so heavily in my zeitgeist. And it's just her showing up and, like, knocking the hell out of this great role. Are you all right? Yeah, fine. John, it's late. Honey, I was beginning to worry about you. If you hurry home, we can sit down and have dinner together. I'm making beef stew. Something's wrong. She's never this nice. John? Where are you? What the hell is the goddamn dog barking at? Hey! Shut up, you worthless piece of shit! The dog's really barking. I thought you were going to tell the kid to get rid of that fucking mutt. John, honey, it's late. Please don't make me worry. Can I already be there? Honey, are you okay? I'm right here. I'm fine. Are you 
Are you sure you're all right? What's the dog's name? Max. Hey, Janelle. What's wrong with Wolfie? I can hear him barking. Is he okay? Wolfie's fine, honey. Wolfie's just fine. What are you? Your foster parents are dead. And that's a perfect example of the work that Robert Patrick is doing with her as well. Like, she's a great actor. And together, they actually give a shit about what they're doing and don't phone it in. Because you could have done that role in many different ways. I think Robert Patrick taking this role so seriously and her being such a great actress, like they they combine for these really powerful moments. And I want to make sure we're giving her props for that because that is just her doing it. You know, like I think in my head, I still think of it as Robert Patrick inside her body, which is crazy. I'm like, no, that's Jeanette doing this role. And like in, in understanding what this creature was, so much. She only has one scene of being him, but so much that like they have that little moment that always sticks with me at the end of this phone call where, you know, she's got her blade through her husband and she retracts her blade a little bit and just sort of looks at the shiny blade a little bit, kind of like, oh, that's me. Here I am. Admire. There's this moment of seeing the T-1000 admire itself. And oh, I, I find love it. that so fun. And she is the one who gets to do that. There's also that little bit of second, um, like a couple scenes earlier where they're like doing the mall chase and running around. And he sees a mannequin that's silver. And like, this is also one of my favorite little details in, in Patrick, in Robert Patrick's performance. He looks at the silver mannequin and without moving his face that much, just lets you know that he's noticing a thing that kind of looks like him and being like, huh. And then carrying on with his death quest. Those beats <laughs> make me love this character so much. I will just say one thing because I have to call it out. We'll probably not talk about this movie on the show, but that idea that you get caught up in an actor playing someone else is something that happened to me when I saw Vanessa Kirby in Dead Reckoning. There's a whole long section in the film where Hallie Atwell's character is embodying Vanessa Kirby's character. It's a great sequence. And I'm like, oh, wow, Hallie Atwell is really good in this movie. But it's not. It's it's Vanessa Kirby. It's just like I love when you can get lost in that. You're like, oh, well, she's wearing the Mission Impossible mask. It's, it's not. You know, like it's fun when you see actors that can go that deep that it actually makes you think for a second. Wait, wait. Oh, yeah. No, no. That's her. I think Are you telling me you want to do face off? Oh, well, that doesn't necessarily fall into my camp of of uh, seamless performances, although they are amazing. Yes, 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 Paul. I do want to do face off. I, I, That's 100%. The, correct well, the first the first unspooled. How did this get made crossover? where We do uh, them on both shows. Is um, there ever a movie more perfect for that? A movie that's actually about trading oh, places, yeah. flip flopping. A I movie that is so perfectly rides the cusp of good and bad. I mean, I'm all for it. You know, at the end of the film, when uh, the T-1000 is is melting in the lava or the molten steel. She was in that tank. Like you think that that's a computer effect. It's not everybody that the T-1000 imitated when like he's going through those death throes of just like reforming in all the shapes that he had done. They were all in that tank because that's where technology was at that point. Wow. I want to pull a clip of that just, you know, because I love the soundscape that they also put on top of that. The like I'm melting, I'm melting visuals over just like this the score that is a combination of like metal and screeching and sound effects. It is amazing sound design. It's such a sad moment because again, does it make sense that a machine would writhe in pain? 
but it's like it's like an animal dying. It, it gives you some sympathy. It does, but also, what I think is so fascinating about, say, you know, the death of of Jeanette of of the mom, where like she is him, and where and where you know Arnold knows that she's dead, is even before the dog test. What like gets Edward Furlong's character nervous about it is just that she's being so nice that Robert Patrick is playing a mom nicer than the mom actually is. And that that is what trips him up. Yes. The T-1000 actually believes that humans are nicer than they are. And it gets him destroyed twice. It gets him like flagged there because he thinks that Jeanette's going to be too nice. And it also gets him flagged at the end when it's like he's also trying to be Linda Hamilton twice. You know, she's like screaming. What gives him away there, too, is he's like, this mom's going to ask her boy for help because that's a normal human thing to do, to be like, please help. Come over here, boy. And in fact, no, his real mom never asked for help and told him never to help her. And that's what gives him away again. Well, I'd also say it's the idea that the T-1000 views itself as being incredibly smart. He doesn't finish the job. He doesn't even finish killing the Terminator, the T-800. Like, he just thinks he's above it. There's an energy about being this perfect piece of machinery that doesn't let him learn properly. There's a, I think that, that there's a difference there between the T-1000 and the T-800. The T-800 is a learning organism. I think that the T-1000 can copy, but not necessarily embody yeah, New he's technology. like reactive. Yeah, I don't right? know. Which, which, like, it throws me off a little bit in that sequence a second before because the first thing he does is he like pins Linda Hamilton with his needle finger, threatens her with his other needle finger, and he's like, "Call for your son." Yes. And I was like, "Why doesn't he just do it? We know we can do it. Yeah. Why isn't he just calling for?" Her? But he maybe on some level he understands that he'll fuck it up because he's just gonna do it wrong. Now let me ask you: We talked about imitating Linda Hamilton. And there's some interesting things with Linda Hamilton in this entire film. And I want to get into Linda Hamilton in detail. But let me ask you this. Would you consider her a supporting actress in this movie? Like if you were nominating people for this movie, supporting or lead, I'm going to say supporting, but you could disagree. Oh, this is interesting. This is a huge fight we have every year with LAFCO about every single movie. Um, You know, if she is supporting, I don't know who then I would even say is the lead. Honestly, like, I don't know if I could straight up say that Arnold is the lead if she is supporting. I mean, I feel like they have about the same amount of screen time. Okay. All right. So you would say she's a a lead actress. I almost might say that this is a movie without a lead. You know, I wouldn't say Edward is the lead. I wouldn't say Robert Patrick is the lead. I think Schwarzenegger is the lead. I mean, his name is on the poster. He's the star. He is the Terminator. He is the star. Well, then if he's lead, I want her to be lead. Okay. Well, then let me talk about why this performance was not recognized at the Oscars. Because it's a tough year. You got Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. You have Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon for Thelma and Louise. You have Bette Midler for For the Boys and Laura Dern for Rambling Rose. And you know what? If you stack all those together, I can imagine that at the time there were think pieces like, we did it. We solved having, you know, weak performances in Hollywood. Look at all these strong female characters. Yeah, We can take a victory lap. We never have to worry about this again. I think that Linda Hamilton gives a phenomenal performance in this movie. This is like, she is now in our pantheon of 
amazing action stars like because of this performance. But before this, you know, she's been in Terminator 1. She looks like the flashback. You know, like that's how she's normally we're used to seeing her. She's been in uh, that TV show Beauty and the Beast. With Ron Perlman. Yes. Uh, written by George R.R. R. Martin. What? Really? I'm pretty positive. I had no idea. I only ever saw one episode of it when I was like at a hotel with my aunt and uncle going to a theme park in the next day. That is my only memory of Beauty and the Beast. But this transformation is epic, like truly epic. When you see her looking like this badass, what she plays in this movie, and I know we're saying, oh, a lot of the performances are robotic, but she gets that time in the mental institution to show where she's at. She plays a character that is fragile, that is tough, that can kick your ass. She goes up and down. Like she plays all the emotions. Just that moment where she sees the T-800 for the first time after seeing her be such a badass and breaking out of this hospital and you see it all drop within an instant or you see her trying to manipulate her therapist Great character actor, uh, Earl Bowen. She is doing it all. Like, this is not just like, how do you feel about the term like badass? Like, when, I think people love to like be like, oh, she's such a badass. Like, I mean, she's just an action star. Like, or like, do you ever feel that way? Like when people talk about like women in action roles, like, oh, they're such a badass. Like, uh, you know, there's like a way of like, talking about it like do you like that term will you refer to her as a badass i mean i would refer to her as a badass because she is such a fucking badass but also as you're saying it's like the layers underneath it that make this performance amazing you know that fear in her eyes that you're talking about seeing her calculation uh, like this character has so much range inside of it while also kind of committing to like the i need to like save everybody i need to kill this i have to do this she hits these different emotional beats kind of in a way that makes them feel seamless and not toggling. Because I feel like if you want to say like Sarah Connor has these a rap it about faces, she shows up at Dyson's house and doesn't end up pulling the trigger on him. There's a way where that would feel kind of fake or cheesy or you wouldn't buy it or it would seem like such a wild mood shift. But somehow when I look at her eyes, looking at Dyson, looking at his family, holding this gun, being like, If I don't kill this guy, billions of people are going to suffer. I know this for a fact. I'm not just guessing. And yet not pulling the trigger. She makes you feel that on some level, there is this element in Sarah Connor that loves life, that loves humanity and can't do it in that moment. Right? And she doesn't even explain herself. She doesn't even like have to say a line about it. But you feel in her this need to love and protect and how the path to doing that is not clear. And isn't that amazing? She is the same character that she was in the first movie underneath everything else that she has become. I mean, she's become this person who is trained with, you know, militias and she's been in an institution and she's she's broken. I love that. I love that you're talking about it in a way that makes me almost picture the T-1000 melting again. Like you see her, this character kind of smelt down in all of these situations and you get that little glimpse of like, the waitress who just also wants the world to work right. I have that coffee now, please. Yes, sir. Okay, who gets the burly uh, beef? I ordered barbecue beef. I think that's mine, but I didn't know the price. barbecue beef. Mine's the chili beef deluxe. Okay, who gets the burly beef? Yes, we're ready to order now. Yes, ma'am. And I'm glad that you brought up that melting moment because at the end of this movie, there is no love lost, at least in my 
watch of this movie of her hitting that button and sending him into that oh, no. lava. She gives like him she, a handshake and she's like, good job, sir. You did a job. She's like, and you are still a fucking robot. Like, you know, and there is there is something really powerful about that. It is a performance that I would argue is just as complex as Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. It bests all the other performances, too. I like Gina Davis a lot, and I like Susan Sarandon a lot, but what she's doing as an actress, like just purely from a what the role required, from physical to performative, she brings the heat more than I think most of the people in that category. You know, I would not disagree with you on that, honestly. I think her effort actually maybe winds up dinging her because what I remember from this moment is that people saw this movie and they came away only wanting to talk about her biceps and not her acting. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, that's, yes, that she yes. Re- she transformed her body and then it was like the Linda Hamilton workout. How'd she get it? What are those abs? Is she too manly looking? I don't know. And that was the conversation. Not like, can we talk about her amazing performance? I do think that by changing the ending of this movie, like they shot two endings of this movie, um, if they had used the other ending, I think she definitely would not have gotten nominated like even twice over because like your last memory of Sarah Connor would be seeing her in this like ridiculous old age makeup that they put on her where, you know, have you seen like the the duplicate ending? There's yes. this ending of this movie that takes place like in 2027 where you're watching Sarah Connor. Now she's old. She's sitting at a park and she's talking about how the world didn't end and what happened. August 29th, 1997 came and went. Nothing much happened. Michael Jackson turned 40. There was no judgment day. People went to work as they always do. Laughed, complained, watched TV, made love. I wanted to run through the street yelling to grab them all and say, every day from this day on is a gift. Use it well. We had the technology to make a liquid metal man, but we did not have the technology to make her look old. And so I'm very glad, at least for her sake, that we never had to look at that Sarah Connor because I don't think that that, I don't think that works. I like her driving away, unknown future. We don't know what's going to happen to herself. So they can make nine terrible sequels. Uh, but yes, 100%, I agree with you. It leaves her character stronger. I mean, I think that sweet ending is not fitting for the movie either. You know, it's like, it's bad for the movie. I think as Cameron, as a director, I think that that, that ending would ding Cameron as well. You know, Cameron shot a lot of stuff. And I and I think to your point, yes, there are effects in this movie that are next level. But at the root of it, this is a movie full of practical effects. This is a movie full of very easy to follow action with big trucks, helicopters, no excessive CGI in this movie. Even like when the Terminator, the T-1000 gets shot, like... Like, if you look at it in a still frame, it's comical. It looks like a, a, like someone attached like an exploding silver flower to Robert Patrick's chest. Like, they did so much in camera that wasn't done outward that th- I think it makes this movie so visceral. It's so fun to watch. Because you're like, oh, at the end of the day, this is still a giant truck crashing into the L.A. River. This is still, like, a helicopter flying within feet of this, like, Brinks armored truck or whatever they have there. Um, You could never make this movie again. You know, we talk about that a lot with like, oh, could you ever make this movie again because of content? This movie, I don't think they would ever let 
it seems dangerous. It seems straight up dangerous to me. Like when you watch old Westerns where like cowboys are being, you know, dragged under horses and stuff like that. It's like, no, no, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to put people in danger anymore. But that helicopter flying that close, this movie benefits from, yes, he had the technology from the abyss to say, I'm going to take the same character from the abyss and make him my villain for this movie. And the difference is I won't make it transparent. But everything else is just real. I mean, for the most part. I mean, it is like there are there are way more practical special effects shots here than than CG shots. There's only 42 CG shots in this movie. Wow. Which I find astounding because to me, this was the high water mark of CG that stayed at the high water mark for like another 10 years. You know, usually like I feel like technology can advance exponentially here. I'm like, no, they did it. And then everybody else tried to catch up to them for a long time and couldn't do it as good. Right. And, you, yeah. and they're inventing it on the fly. Like, I love going around and, like, watching old videos of how they made this, like, on YouTube. There's a bazillion of them. You can see, like, Robert Patrick in underwear covered in tiny just yes. grid marks walking around and them sort of tracing where his bones are. I mean, the idea of making him, like, metal and reflective, but then, like, people going in and kind of adding also some smudges to the metal so it looked more realistic. It's amazing. I, I just find it to be, like, thrown down the jug- the hammer and been, like, top this and nobody could well and this is where you go you know to these artisans like stan winston who created these robots you know that look great but then you go to oh, the robots behind the scenes seeing the robot arnie faces oh. like move around and wink you're like oh my god that's incredibly realistic i mean and he's doing that but then on the other side you're doing like old-fashioned trickaroos like the security guard who is getting a cup of coffee and gets like the, oh, I got a full house, that guy. Like, that's twins. Like, the reason why he can appear behind him is because that guy is a twin. And the reason why, like, Sarah Connor sees herself in the mirror, because she's a twin. That's her twin. That's like Linda Hamilton. Yeah, Linda Hamilton has a twin. Yeah. (laughs) And they, they, like, use that in the movie. And, like, even down to Schwarzenegger, like, they put KY Jelly in his makeup to make him seem a little bit more shiny or, like, uh, rubbery. You know, and I think it does actually really work. But this is, like, Old school tricks and new school tricks. Like the the idea of like the mirror trick or like just using twins is wild to me. Like, you know, it's like when I read that he really wanted to do Jurassic Park, the reason why there's a dinosaur up in the Dyson Laboratories is because like that was just kind of like tip of the hat to like, hey guys, let me direct Jurassic Park. You know, I'm like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. And I think he would have done it like the same way that Spielberg did, which is also a mix of practical and real. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys who made this movie, Jurassic Park was their next job. They did this movie. Then they went over and they all did Jurassic Park together. It, like, I don't think it, anyone would have worked with Cameron right away because the crew was so upset with him on this film that they were wearing shirts that says T3, not with me. Like, that's how hard, <laughs> like people were wearing anti-T3 shirts on the set of T2. Oh yeah. The protests on this set. I mean, the complicated feelings that people have about Cameron because- He doesn't try to manipulate a crew into doing what he wants. He just screams at them. I mean, one of the producers just kind of leaned into this and she made stickers that look like bullet holes. And so if you got yelled at by Cameron that day, she'd put a bullet hole sticker on your back to sort of be like, I acknowledge that that happened. It was pretty rough. And they would just sort of gather these bullet hole shirts. They'd wear shirts of like the mean things that he yelled at them on set. They'd wear shirts that were like, what would it cost to get your full attention? Or if the gun doesn't fire, you're a dead man or damn it, that's exactly what I don't want. I mean, at least he has a sense of humor enough about himself that you could wear that shirt around him and you don't get fired, I suppose. Right. You can say that to him as a compliment. 
maybe that weird balance of a sense of humor is one of the things that kind of like fascinates me about this movie because this movie is being made in 1991 when all our action guys were just famous for delivering terrible quips, especially Arnold, Arnold being like the king of the quip. And I was listening really carefully to all of the funny lines in here because what I respect in a way is that almost, almost all of the things that Arnold Schwarzenegger says in here are funny without the Terminator thinking he's being funny. And they're skating right on the line. You know, like there's that little bit when he's like mowing down all the police officers and he does this. Yeah, and I was like, huh, that kind of plays like a joke. Hold this. But he's also just being really practical. Hold this. Like, is the Terminator trying to be funny or is he not trying to be funny? You know, and, and basically the same thing happens like immediately after with like the T-1000. Get out. This is a line that's like delivered like a quip, but it's not a quip, right? Like I'm trying to think like, are these Terminators human enough to think they're being funny? Well, to me, it's that moment in Terminator 1 where the guy comes to the apartment or the the hotel room and it's like, hey, sir, can you let me in? And he looks at all the choices and it's like, fuck you, you know, or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like he fuck picked, you, you know, it's like, yeah, fuck you, asshole. Like, yeah. it's like, but they're like the two robots at the end are not trading quips, right? As they're fighting. It's not like, right. I'll, I'll make you into a mach- yeah. machine. Yeah, I'm going to you know? toast you. You're going to be a toaster. But you know what? You're talking about this idea of like, not just making it about jokes and action. And yes, this movie is about two robots. Like that's what we're like. This is a movie about robots, right? And we're talking about like, oh my gosh, he added heart. He did this whole thing. And this is where you look at like, what Terminator has become since 1991. And it's a goddamn shit show. Like, because it forgot all these rules. It forgot the idea of what was interesting about it. The first movie is a horror movie. The second movie is this really interesting, fun, sci-fi chase movie. You know, it's it's like Midnight Run or something like that. You know, it has like, it has like a real simple plot. Um, and then it just starts to get so fucking confusing and Schwarzenegger plays into his worst instincts. You know, Cameron's like involved, but he's not really involved. And you get all these movies that are, I think forgetting what this franchise was based on. And there's a part of me that goes, maybe we should have had that original ending that we talked about. That would have been terrible just so we would have stopped making Terminator movies. Just to end it, just to end it right there. Yeah. I mean, mean, they do kind of roll with like, where I think his quips maybe go too far. Like, I hate this one right at the ending. Like, people get mad at the thumbs up. I get mad at this one. Holy shit. I need a vacation. Oh, I don't like that one, too. Right? That's terrible. Need a vacation from what? What's a vacation What is for a vacation a to you? Yeah. It's terrible. Like, when you look at the script for Terminator 2, that line is not there. Instead, like, it just says in the direction, the Terminator looks like he needs a vacation. Right. Which I suppose would just be a glint in the eye. I don't know at what point on the set Arnold was like, I'm just going to say that. I haven't had a single proper quip. You're going to give me this one. But it's terrible. And then as these movies go on, they start to figure out like these jokey ways to set up. Oh, that's why he has an Austrian accent. Oh, that was the model. That was like, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't need, need it. it. No. If you're going to make another Terminator movie, just remake the first one. Like, remake the first one. It's a cool story. I don't think you need to continue the story. And look, they they did it with TV shows. They've done it with, you know, 
animated series. They, you know, James Cameron comes back to do Dark Fate, which I saw, and I don't, I don't even, they all blend together at a certain point. And you have all these different people playing Eddie Furlong's role. You have all these different John Connors, and they're, you know, whether it's Jason Clark, you know, it's like, and who is great, and or Christian Bale. I mean, Christian Bale is in the, you know, it unpacked everything cool and interesting about this franchise. And this franchise would have been so much better if we just didn't go past these two films. Like what a perfect heightening because at the, at the end of the day, yes, you can think, well, then a little bit later, another robot came back. Oh, that robot went from the past. All right. Like who cares? Who cares? Like, can't we just enjoy the simplicity of it? But we can't, we had to find other ways. And I, I think the people don't understand why this movie was so good. And it's the same issue that we deal with with aliens. Like, why are we trying to go back and unpack and retool? Let's just go. It's okay. It's okay. Like, we don't need more. We don't need to understand it more. Because I think actually understanding it more is what makes these movies suck. Right? Like, it's like, the more we try to make sense of it, it's like you open up a box and you're like, well, if I'm explaining that, then I have to explain this. And if I'm, and then all of a sudden we're not watching a movie. We're watching a fan theory played out in 90 minutes. But you know what? Yeah. At least Terminator 2 did get to ricochet throughout, you know, other films in pop culture history. Sure. It shows up in Wayne's world. Yes, officers. There's something wrong. Have you seen this boy? Ah! Ah! Which makes me think, Let's do Wayne's World. What if we do Wayne's World next? I love that. All right. Yes. Let's do Wayne's World. Original. Original. Or sequel. All right. Got it. I I don't even know why I asked. So, Amy, I know we talked a lot today, but I want to just go back in time. If you've been listening to every episode, you know that there was a heated debate when we were discussing what movies should go on the list, uh, the the best films of all time. And we threw it to our listeners. We said, we have problems here. We don't know which Tim Burton should go on the list. We don't know uh, which Mel Brooks should go on the list. And I'm, I'm proud to tell you, Amy, that when Pee-wee's Big Adventure went up against Edward Scissorhands, it was a very clear winner of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Edward Scissorhands did not stand a chance next to wow. Pee-wee. Maybe that will change. I think we're in a, a moment where we are thankful and reflecting on, on Pee-wee, but it... It did not stand a chance. And the other one that was a lot closer was our Mel Brooks vote. Uh, That was Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Uh, Well, guess what? They sided with me. Uh, Well, I was conflicted, but they sided with me in saying that Young Frankenstein might be the better film for this list. Uh, That was a tough one. I I still am uh, debating that one. That was a tough one. Both of my picks lost out to the popular vote. But you know what? I trust you guys. I trust you guys. I'm going to go meditate. And just think about practicing my, my my belief in others. Well, you know what? Look, if the popular vote decided who would be cast as the Terminator, we wouldn't have had Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like, it, like sometimes we have to go out of the box and, you know, that those voices need to be heard. Right now, the API list, the Amy and Paul Institute, is up to 75 movies now. You can check it out at unspooledpod.com. And Amy, speaking of Terminator, we talked a lot about Terminator this week. I think it's only worthy that we throw back to another Cameron. Um, and another big Cameron. I want to throw this one, if we can, to another time when people said that James Cameron had gotten way too ambitious and he was doomed to fail. Titanic. This was one of our earlier episodes that we did, I think. Well, I mean, we're talking like way back in the day, early and unspooled. I got so many messages after our Titanic episode from people who also cried at the scenes that I cried when we played the scenes that make me cry. To me, this was a very, very, very special episode. Let's take a listen. 
Well, see, here is what I love about just the way James Cameron structures their romance into the film. He does it geographically. Their romance starts at the back of the film with her committing suicide and him trading his life for her. It goes all the way up to the very front of the prow and the heart will go on moment when he kisses her for the first time and they're embracing in the sunset. And then it goes all the way back to the bottom when they're at the back of the ship as it sinks to the ocean and he gives up his life for her again. Wow. It's this beautiful circular arc. You just blew my mind with that. I, I did not think of it like that. That's actually really, it's amazing. I think one thing that this movie does so well is geography. Like it does it so well. James Cameron is amazing at this. Like he sets up how the entire ship looks like. He's like, here's steerage, here's the big gears at the bottom and the coal stuffers, here's first class, here's the dining room, here's the deck. He sets it up so well that when the ship goes to hell at the end of it and they're running through everything, we know where everything is. We've been there. We have the geography. I will argue that he even does it before the actual movie starts by showing you that dive footage of the actual Titanic. You're in the actual Titanic. Then you come out and you're with Bill Paxton. And then they show you a like computer generated simulation of how the Titanic sank. So you understand everything before you even get on that boat. I love that episode. And, uh, Still don't know if that one belongs on the list. But again, let's not <laughs> worry about so that. Oh, you don't even want to start. <laughs> let's not worry about that. And Amy, I got to share one thing before I go with you. Uh, my book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, is now available for pre-order. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I would love it if uh, if y'all did me a solid and, and you pre-ordered the book. That would be amazing. And if you do, uh, save your receipt because I have some really cool, fun incentives that are coming up. Not like uh, bullshit ones. These I'm putting out my own money to do some cool, fun incentives for everyone who's bought the book. I'll talk about that as I get them more locked in. But uh, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, wherever you get your books or your audiobooks, uh, it's stories of, of my life. And uh, I think you will like it. I mean, no less than my wonderful book editor, he read an early draft of it, I think, little bits. And yeah. he said it was amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so happy to hear, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> I, I, uh, as I'm sitting here editing my final draft right now, oh my gosh, uh, it's it's daunting. Um, but I'm sure you'll hear more <laughs> about it here on the show as I get closer to the release date. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP... Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
<laughs> the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.